book of first, the first epistle of Peter, which we, uh, we had a little introduction a couple weeks ago, kind of looked at Peter's ministry, um, how, where he was saved, where he was called, um, saw him when, you know, some of his high points and his low points, amen. How many know there's the valleys and the mountains in the Lord, amen. So we got to witness some of those with him. Um, we also saw the, uh, we saw also that Peter was very instrumental in bringing the, uh, the first message to the Gentiles with Cornelius. We saw that uh, he was, you know, a voice in the church of Jerusalem when they were trying to distinguish whether or not Gentiles could obtain salvation. He was very bold in that. And as we study the life of Peter, one of the things you'll notice is he was a bold man. Um, you know, he stood up and, you know, he, he said he was used mightily in boldness. You know, the second chapter of Acts on the day of Pentecost, standing up against the elders in the council, um, went to jail for the Lord, was rescued mightily by the angel of the Lord. Um, just incredible, incredible testimonies and, and things that Peter accomplished. And one of the greatest things that, he, that I think he left us was these letters, these two letters that, um, that are by Peter. And most Bible teachers believe that they were, you know, they were dictated. Um, Mark was a family member of Peter. Most people think that this was probably the gospel of Mark can also be called the gospel according to Peter. It was, you know, written by Mark, but it was Peter's testimony of the things that have happened. And a lot of, a lot of uh, Bible teachers believe that these were probably written by Mark as well. Um, written around 60 AD, um, later on in the chapter, it says that, that Babylon, in 513, Peter says... The church that is at Babylon elected together with you. Some people try to spiritualize this and think that maybe this was written from Rome. And I disagree. A lot of commentaries believe that it was the actual city of Babylon. For the simple fact, one of the matters is, is that Paul, who preached at Rome, was very clear in Galatians that he was called to the Gentiles and Peter, as we're going to see in verse 1, and that's a good place to start, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 2, that his gospel was for the Gentiles or the uncircumcised and that Peter's gospel was for the circumcised or the Jews, okay? And go with me over there, if you would, Galatians chapter 2. It's a good little verse to underline here. Galatians chapter 2 um, in verse, uh, let's see, verse 8. Galatians 2. Eight. 
And um, we'll start at verse 7, Galatians chapter 2, verse 7. But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles, all right? So what Paul was basically saying is, is God's called me to the Gentiles and he's called Peter to the Jews. Now, Paul states in his letter to the Romans that he would not build upon another man's foundation. You can find that in Romans 15, 20. It says this, yea, I have strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. All right, so Paul's philosophy was this. If the gospel has been preached, if somebody is planted somewhere, there is no reason for him to go labor there. Somebody has already labored there. So he's going to take his efforts and his energy in the Holy Ghost, and he's going to go where somebody else has not labored, where those who have not heard the gospel. Now, Paul, as we know, in all of the, some of his letters, and in, in in particularly in the letter to the Romans, Paul is longing to go visit the church at Rome. He wants to go to Rome. We know that. He appealed to see, he appealed his citizenship as a Roman, appealed to Caesar so he could get to Rome. So, based on Paul's testimony, I don't believe that Peter was writing this letter from Rome. I believe he was actually at the city of Babylon in the east. Because remember, Babylon hadn't been, you know, Babylon was a place. There are many people that went east out of Jerusalem. You know, um, Thomas, a lot of people, a lot of uh, church historians um, credit Thomas to establishing the church even as far as the India and the far east. Matthew went east with his ministry, Amen. So, so the church did not just go from Samaria up north and take a left and go into Europe. As a matter of fact, if you study the, gospel, the, the book of Acts, the fifth gospel, Paul was prohibited from going east. And the Spirit of the Lord actually turned him to the west into Europe. And that's probably based on what Paul's saying is my I want to go where no man has gone before, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Amen? There you go. All right. So that's what Paul wanted to do. So there was probably a strong mission work in the east, and Paul was moved to the west. So it's my conviction and my opinion that this was written from the city of Babylon somewhere around 60 A.D., give or take a few. All right? So... And he's writing it to those that are scattered, strangers, all right, or sojourners is a better word there, um, of the dispersion. Because we know that when great persecution came on the church, when Andrew was beheaded, he was, uh, what, the second martyr of the church. Stephen was, was first, yeah, he'd be the first. Stephen was probably the second, all right, um, the church, when Peter was locked up, you know, there was great persecution coming from Herod and the Jews. They saw that, he saw that it pleased the Jews when he would 
persecute the church, so more pure persecution started. Now, the funny thing about persecution is, is it's, if you study church history, God always brought persecution on a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not really lazy, but uh, 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 idle is a good word. Where the church was idle, where they weren't going out, where they weren't doing what Jesus told them to do. Remember, he said, you'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, what seemed to be happening is is the church just kind of stagnated there in Jerusalem. And what happened was, is a great persecution started, and then they began to disperse, all right? And that's usually what happens. Um, You know, the Lord has a way of using hard times to get the church moving. Amen? That's why I'm kind of encouraged in the days that we're living in right now. You know, because he uses hard times to get the church activated. Now, so we think that uh, this was written to the strangers that that Peter was called to. They were scattered abroad through the persecution in all parts of the world. And verse 2, we come to it finally. There's so much in this verse. I'll read it first, then we'll go from there. It says... Verse 2, it says, The elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. All right? Now, Peter was a fisherman. He didn't have the education that Paul had, but he wasn't ignorant when it came to the Scriptures. Peter was a mighty man. And, you know, the, you can read some of the commentaries and they say that, you know, Peter probably didn't, wasn't the most eloquent. He didn't have the best, um, you know, uh, usage of the Greek language when he wrote this letter and stuff. But he was not an ignorant man because he's got more doctrine in verse 2 than some portions of the Bible have in a whole chapter. All right? First of all, We should not argue the Trinity at all. The Trinity is proven in verse 2. We have God the Father, we have the Spirit, and we have Jesus Christ in one verse there. All right? Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And it's through the sanctification of the Spirit, and it's through the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. All right? So there we see the Trinity, Father, Spirit, and Son. Father, Spirit, and Jesus Christ. Amen? The Trinity's not a mystery. People try to argue, or some people even try to get a hang-up on, you know, 1 John, the, you know, where there's a big controversy of whether or not that Scripture proves the Trinity. You know, we don't need 1 John as our, to hang our hat on for the Trinity. 1 John is not the only Scripture in the New Testament that speaks of the triune God. God is in three parts, all right? He's three persons, three personalities. I don't have to figure it out in my head. We come up with really cool analogies to kind of help us, but at the end of the day, even without those analogies, I'm just called to believe that it's in the Scriptures, and I don't have to figure it out. You know, when when God said, let us make man in our image, that was plural. 
He didn't say, let us make man in my image. He said ours. He used a plural word there. So, you know, God is three in one. And that's the beauty of what we believe in. I think it's the beauty of the Christian heritage. It's the beauty of our Christian doctrine. Because I'll tell you what. You can sniff out religion real quick in the world. You go out through the world and you speak to these other religions. When you start speaking of the Trinity, they can't handle it. They can't handle it. It blows their mind. They argue with you. They debate you. They try to reason with you. They, they, can't, they can't grasp it. And you know why they can't grasp it? Because they're not born again. Because when you're born again, you receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, And when I was filled with the Holy Spirit, I had no problem believing in the Trinity. You know what I'm saying? I had no problem with it. I didn't think, well, you know, I don't know about this, God. No, the Holy Spirit bore witness in me that this is true. Praise God. Problem solved. And so that's the the situation when you deal with all these other religions, even some of those that say they even read the Bible, like, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or people like that. You know, they will argue with you the Trinity. And the very fact that they argue with the Trinity shows that they are not born again, the elect of God, by the Holy Ghost, believing in the truth of the doctrines of the apostles that were handed down to us, the church. Amen? Amen. So, the Trinity, it's there, it's real. I got no problem with it. Verse 2 is another controversial scripture. Because he begins to say, the elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Well, if you study your church history, boy, the reformers did good for a little bit. And then all of a sudden, they just started getting crazy. When Zwingli and Calvin and all those guys... They just started sitting around instead of going out and preaching the gospel and winning the laws. They all just sat around at tables and began to reason together and try to overthink the scriptures. And they come up with some of the craziest stuff that is that has split the church for generations and generations. This whole doctrine of predestination, once saved, always saved, or can you lose your salvation? You know, all these different things. We're going to deal with the predestination in two places, or probably the best place when we talk about the doctrine of predestination is in Peter and in Romans, all right? So keep your finger there in 1 Peter and turn with me to Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. All right. Now, these are things that you'll run into. You know, if you've been, those of you who've been saved for a while, you know, you know, you've, you've heard of this stuff. Those of you who haven't been saved, give it a little bit and you'll run into this. And that's why I think it's, you know, and, and I'm the type of guy, I just go through the scriptures. When I see something there, we address it. Amen. So that's what we're doing tonight. Um, if you've heard this stuff before, that's okay. I'm here to politely remind you. All right, what did I say? Romans 8 
Thank you. Thank you so much. Here we go. Romans 8.29. Now, let's start at verse 28. A wonderful verse that we all like to quote. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. How many love God tonight? How many really love God? Amen. Well, to them who are called according to his purpose. How many are called here tonight? How many are really called? Amen. Amen. All right. So we know that if you love God and you're called, all things will work together for the good. Okay. Now, the problem that Christians have with this verse sometimes is they try to quote this verse over somebody that, you know, maybe they had a tragedy in their family. Maybe they lost a loved one. And, you know, and then we try to comfort them by quoting this verse. And it's really not a good verse to, this is not a good comfort scripture when tragedy hits. Okay. You don't use this verse. Don't use it. Okay. But what this does is this should comfort the believer, okay? This should comfort the believer to know that at the end of it all, we win. Amen? At the end of it all, we win. And here's why. And he gives us a list. For when he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among brethren, many brethren. Morton, who's the subject matter there? His son is the subject matter there. Christ is the subject matter there. Verse 30, moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Okay, so if you've got a pen or a, a, an iPad or whatever, whatever you want to do there, mark the following words, foreknow, predestinate, called, justified, and glorified. All right, keep your finger there and go with me over to back to Peter for a minute. And in Peter, underline the word elect and sanctification. All right? So when we are looking at the order of how we got here and where we're going, it's in this order. I call it the seven steps of Christianity. All right? And that's not something that I've had a long time. I just made it up tonight as I was talking to my wife. The seven steps of Christianity. Step one, the foreknowledge of God. Step two, the election of God. Step three, predestination. Step four, called or the calling. Step five, justified. Step six, sanctified. Step seven, glorified. All right? So there's seven steps there or seven phases to when we 
this whole experience, this whole born-again experience, if you take Romans and Peter together and you make a list of the order that they come in, that's the, that's the flow there. The foreknowledge of God, the election, the predestination, the called. When you're called, you're justified. After you're justified, you're sanctified through the Spirit. And after you're sanctified through the Spirit, you're glorified through the resurrection. Okay? So... How does this all work then? And where does it get confusing? Well, Peter tells us that the elect, we are elected according to God's foreknowledge. All right? That shouldn't be a problem to believe. God is outside of our time domain. God sees from the beginning to the end. He knows what's going to happen. All right? When God chooses When he elects something, it says he's elected it according to what he already knew was going to happen. So it's not like God has like came into this room and there's a group of people here and he just says, I choose you. I choose you. I don't choose you. You know, like a like a bad getting picked on a baseball team. You know, who's ever always the last guy that got picked? That was me. I hated that feeling. That's not what it's like here. He doesn't have a group of people and then he just, I choose you, but I don't choose you. I choose you, but I don't choose you. Not according to who he likes or better yet, who he loves, because that would be contrary to the scripture. Because what does John 3, 16 tell us? What passage? For God so loved the what? Whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that what? whosoever. So we have the world and the whosoever. So if God is picking favorites, then John 3.16 is not truth. Where's the whosoever? All right, where's the world? So what does God, how does he elect? He elects according to his foreknowledge. Because he knows that when he sent his son, he knows already who's going to receive him. Amen? So then, once he elects somebody, once somebody is elected, then they are predestinated, all right? Or they have a destiny ahead of them. Now, I like to think of it this way, you know, how many have ever been on an airplane and, you know, when you fly from London to Los Angeles, the pilot will get on there and he will tell you, Ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard British Airways Flight 65. I'd like to welcome you, and we're going to be taking off. We'll have a cruising speed of 35,000 feet. As we depart out of London, we'll be going over Liverpool. We'll fly over Ireland. We will hit the, the, the parts of Iceland. We'll be coming into Nova Scotia. We'll be going across Canada, and then we'll be going across the, the Rocky Mountains, and then we'll be traveling down through the high deserts of California, and we're going to make a hard ride across the Pacific Ocean, do a 360-degree turn, and land into Los Angeles Airport. All right. That pilot has predestinated that plane to go from London to Los Angeles. All right? Now, he has elected a flight plan according to his weather charts, according to the boundaries that he is familiar with, He has a foreknowledge of the weather, of where they're going, his experience of flying that route. So he has 
predestinated that plane. He's elected or chosen a route according to what he already knows. All right? And that's kind of what the Lord has done with humanity. If we really want to break it down, and if we look at the word predestinated, all right? What really got me on this is the Greek word for predestinated, or foreknowledge, I mean, is where we get the, is prognosis, where we get the word prognosis. We know what a prognosis is, right? So you could read it like this, verse 29 of Romans chapter 8, from whom he did foreknow or had the prognosis, he did predestinate or predetermine to be conformed to the image of his son. The Bible says that from the foundations of the world, Christ was crucified. In other words, God in his foreknowledge knew the state of man. He diagnosed the disease and the cure was to be conformed into the image of his son. And so what he did is he sent his son to be raised from the dead. And those whom believed, he predestinated, verse 30, and he called. Now that word called there is simply an invitation. All right? So God had a plan. It was a predetermined plan. That was God's part. And then the invitation went out. All right? And this is where the confusion always happens in this. People try to put all of this in one time zone. The first part of those verses are in God's, that's God's part. That's on his side, all right? That's on his side. The other part is us. And I, you might have heard me say this before, but I love this illustration here by, um, by a commentator named H.A. Ironside. Some of you might have heard of him. And I'll just read it to you so I don't mess it up. There's a vast host of people hurrying down the broad road with their minds fixed upon their sins. And one stands calling attention to a door yonder. The entrance into it is narrow. The narrow way that leads to life eternal. And on it is plainly depicted this text. Whosoever will, let him come. Every man is invited. No one need hesitate. Some may say, well, I may not be of the elect, and so it would be useless for me to endeavor to come, for the door will not open for me. But God's invitation is absolutely sincere. It is addressed to every man, whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. If men refuse to come, if they pursue their own godless way down to the pit, whom can they blame but themselves for their eternal judgment? The messenger addressed himself to all. The call came to all, and the door could be entreated by all, but many refused to come and perished in their sin. Such men can never blame God for their eternal destruction. The door was open, 
The invitation was given, they refused. He says to them sorrowfully, you will not come unto me that you might have life. I'm going inside. I will accept the invitation. I will enter the door. And he presses his way in, and it shuts behind him. And as he turns about, he finds written on the inside of the door the words, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. You see? So the hallway is this world. And on the outside of that door is whosoever will, let him enter. But on outside of this time domain in eternity, above the same door, looking on the other side is chosen from the foundations of the world. See, you got to have God's perspective and you got to have humanity's perspective. And the problem with this doctrine of predestination is it's two different perspectives, but men have tried to teach it as looking at it from one side only. But to get this doctrine of predestination correct, you look at it from God's perspective and man's perspective. Amen? Amen. Praise God. So remember that. So I also like the word firstborn. It comes from a word where we get the word prototype. All right? So God's prognosis on the earth was to follow the pattern that Jesus set for us. That's how humanity is changed. We're living in a world where we're always trying to have all these different programs to reform man. God, from the beginning's answer to reform man is to be conformed into the image of Jesus. Amen? He's the pattern. He's the prototype. The way man can solve all of his problems is to be like his son. Amen? And God has given us the ability to become like his son by believing on Jesus, which is the justification part, being filled with the spirit, which is the sanctification part, and then being raised from the dead, just like Christ was, which is the glorification part. Amen? Amen. So, back to 1 Peter. Did I make that clear enough? All right. It's kind of a sticky wicket, but you know. Now, so Peter, <laughs> he dropped a bombshell on us in the, in the second verse of the chapter here, talking about election. And so we've covered that. Remember them seven steps, all right? We got foreknowledge, elect. Predestination, all right, called, justified, sanctified, glorified, amen? All right. Now he says here that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctification of the Spirit, all right? Now we all know what sanctification is. The sanctification of the Spirit, or the work of the Spirit in the believer, is when we allow the Holy Spirit to conform us, to transform us. Paul said it very clearly in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
Sanctification is changing the way we think. And the best thing that changes the way I think and the way you think is God's word. Amen. And that's what we're doing tonight. We're just changing the way we think. And by doing that, we're being sanctified. We're being set apart for his work. That's why we do what we do here tonight. Now, the other thing he says here is he brings in the doctrine of the blood. All right? The sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're going to tackle the doctrine of the blood, of the blood, what the blood is, probably the two most powerful verses in the Bible is one in the old, one in the new. The first one is in Hebrews chapter 9, and the other one is in Leviticus chapter 17. So let's start in the Old Testament. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. The blood is precious to God. That's why God hates murder. The blood is precious. And Satan tries to make a mockery of the blood with all of these horror films. He tries to make blood something that is common. The blood is not supposed to be common. The blood, when you see blood, it should be shocking. It should make you stand in, you know... But with the horror movies and the Texas Chainsaw Massacres and the Jasons and the Freddies and the, all those cats, they try to make the blood something. They belittle the blood. They make it a common thing. That's why I hate horror movies. I knew I got saved, man. A few things happened to me when I got saved, and one of them was I couldn't stand watching horror movies. And I used to watch them all the time when I was in high school. Well, I cannot stand Horror films. And uh, because they mock the blood, amen? Where did I say we were going to? Leviticus, Leviticus, chapter 17. All right, yeah, that chapter you read last night. Leviticus 17. Say amen when you're there. Everybody's there but me. All right, Leviticus 17. I'll get there. Here we go. All right, and let's start at verse 11. 1711, and um, I don't want to start there really, I think I'm going to bring it to... uh, Verse 10, an explanation of the sanctity of blood. Whosoever and whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel or of the strangers that sojourn among you that eateth any manner of the blood, I will even set my face against that soul that eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. 
That's why when the New Testament, when they were trying to, when the early church was being born and they were trying to put a bunch of rules on them, including circumcision, they basically wrote a letter and just gave them a few things to avoid, sex outside of marriage and drinking blood was kind of among one of the, some of the things that they advised them not to do. Why? Because they had to keep the blood sanctified or set apart. They had to keep the blood holy in their mind. You know, in England, they've got this awful dish called black pudding. I never ate it. It looks like a hockey puck. And you can see just chunks of coagulated blood in it. I don't know why they eat it. But they're weird. <laughs> it's called, and I don't know why they call it black pudding, because it does not taste like chocolate pudding. <laughs> Doesn't taste like a pudding. But it's just pig's blood. Hardened pig's blood, and they eat it. And, um, you know, uh, it's nasty. And when they try to get me to eat it, I just take them to Leviticus chapter 17. Now, verse 11, why didn't God want his people to eat blood? For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. So what makes an atonement for the soul? The blood does. And that's why the blood is precious. Because only the blood can make an atonement. I like the word atonement because if I break it down, it makes me think of at one. You want to think, what does atonement mean? Atonement makes you at one with God. See, we are sinful, but God, to approach God, the way we know that we have peace with God is through the blood. You see, when you fall or when if I fall or if we all do something that's wrong and we feel the weight of the shame or the guilt or the sin, you know, the devil tries to keep you from coming to church saying you're not worthy, you're no good, you can't, you know, you can't walk in the door. Why are you raising your hands lifting the Lord? You just had a fight with your kids or why'd you do this? You just ran a red light or why'd you do this? Some even darker things, you know, you were watching stuff you should have been watching. Oh, man, you, you just cussed out your neighbor for walking on your lawn. You can't raise your hands and worship God, you hypocrite. You know what you do when that happens? Plead the blood, man. You plead the blood. And you remind that old devil that when God looks at me, he sees the blood of his son. Because I believe in the blood. And I've asked God to forgive me of my sin according to the blood that makes me at one with him. Amen? It's the blood that makes us at one with him. So the blood is precious. It is the blood that makes an atonement for the what? The soul, man. It's the soul that needs to be at peace with God. Now, let's go over to Hebrews chapter 9.
Look at Hebrews 9. So what is the life of the flesh? What is the life of the flesh? The blood. What's been given as an atonement for the soul? The soul? The blood. All right, Hebrews chapter 9. And we're going to be at verse, uh, verse 19. Hebrews 9, 19. Say amen when you're there. Amen. All right, now look at this. This is pretty cool scripture here. It says, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop. All right? Hyssop's like a tree, like a branch of a bush. And he sprinkled both the book, all right, and all of the people, saying, this is the blood of the testament or of the covenant or of the commitment or of the commandment which God has enjoined unto you, all right? So in other words, God made covenant made a contract or a promise with the people. And what binded that contract was the sprinkling of this blood. It's like God's signature. How many's ever bought a home or a car? You couldn't get out the door without doing what? Sign in your name. Sign in your name. The shed blood of Jesus Christ is like God's signature saying, I shall never leave you or forsake you. It's his signature. It's his pledge to keep what he said he'd do. And what, he say, what did he say he'd do? Well, I know one couple of things he said he'd do. First of all, he said he'd forgive my sin. And second, he said he's going to raise me from the dead and give me a new body. And he got his signature on it, man. You know, that new body, you know what that new body doesn't have? It doesn't have cancer. You know what that new body doesn't have? It doesn't have tumors. You know what that new body doesn't have? It doesn't have diabetes. And that new body sure doesn't have any aches or pains. It doesn't have leukemia or any other kind of disease this old world tries to put on the body. It doesn't have it. And because it doesn't have it, and because that's where we're going, that's why the believer in faith can believe on those things now in this body. Because the same way that we receive forgiveness of sin is the same way we receive healing. I receive forgiveness of sin through what? Faith in the blood. The Bible says to reckon myself dead to sin and to be raised unto new life. 
And the same way that I reckon myself dead to sin and raised into new life is the same way I reckon myself dead to sickness and raised into new life. You see, sickness has no more authority over our body as sin does. Okay? It does not. It's the same principle. Now, does that mean we're all in here not battling sickness? No, there are people in here that are sick. We have loved ones that are not here tonight that are sick. But let me tell you something. Just because you're sick or just because they're sick doesn't make what Paul's gospel says is true. All right? And it is available to you. And I promise you, if you reach down and you ask God and you believe God, he'll either heal you or he'll tell you why you're not healed or he'll just say like he told Paul, hey, my grace is sufficient. All right? My grace is sufficient. And if I tell you what, if you don't get it in this life, you certainly are getting it in the body that's going to be coming out of that grave. That's for sure. Or the body that's translated when Jesus Christ comes. Does that water down what we can have here now? No. I'm just giving you the different stages. I'm just giving you the different options. Amen? There's different options to the believer. There's different options. Not just one way. That's the problem with doctrine in the church and division and disagreements is everybody tries to just shove one, it into one narrow way. Anyway, I don't know how I got into that, but I guess, you know, I needed to hear that tonight. But the reality is, God saves and delivers. So now, Finishing up my verse here. We were in 19 of chapter 9. This is the blood of the testament which God hath joined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all the things are by the law Purged with blood, and look at this, this is the key. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. All right? Another word for remission is forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Why? Because we saw the way God feels about the blood in Leviticus. It's The blood has been given For an atonement for the soul, the New Testament teaches us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. All right? So we have to preach the blood. The blood is important because without the blood, the spirit sees if the blood has been applied. If there's no blood there, the spirit doesn't come and abide. The Spirit looks to see if blood is applied, then He will come and abide. Amen? Amen. And we need the Spirit to abide for our sanctification and for our power. 
and for doing the things of God and just the, the Holy Spirit comes. But the Holy Spirit, before he comes in, dwells inside a believer, he looks to see if they have believed or they've applied the blood. Kind of like back in the Exodus, huh? You know what? The, you know, the death angel, when he came, he was like, he's flying around and he looked to see if the blood was applied to the doorpost. And when the, where the blood was applied, he moved on, amen? It's like the death. You know, we don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear the grim reaper or the death angel if we've got the blood applied, amen? We don't have to be afraid because we've applied the blood. And so Peter, right out of the gate, before he even gets going in his letter, has hit us with the Trinity, the doctrine of the election, and the blood of Jesus Christ. And we haven't even made it to verse 3 yet. And who says he was just a fisherman? Hey, with being called justified, sanctified, you can be mighty in the Lord when he's got a hold of your life. Amen. You know, you could just be a truck driver. But with Jesus in you and working with you, man, you can be mighty man for God. You could just be an old roofer, a retired roofer, man. But with Jesus in you, working with you, you can do mighty exploits for God. Amen. Now, so he says there in the close of verse 2, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Remember, you can't have peace till you have grace. You can't experience the peace of God until you have the grace of God. Amen? You can't have the grace of God until you have the mercy of God. You being predestinated to come into his son's image is the mercy of God. Your sanctification is the grace of God. My justification gives me peace with God. And my glorification, when we're raised from the dead, it proves the power of God. Amen? Amen. The power of God. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, I love how he says has begotten us again, because you know when Peter traveled with Jesus and they saw the wonderful things that Jesus was doing in his ministry and he was, he was the Messiah. He said, man, the Messiah is here. And then what happened? They saw him whip him and torture him and beat him. Saw him die on that cross. John was there with Mary, the Lord's mother. Saw Jesus give up the ghost and die on a cross. Where was their hope? They had all this hope for three years, walking with Jesus, seeing amazing things. And all of a sudden, it's like their hope was dashed to pieces. Man, we left everything to fall this man. Look what they did him. They hung him on a cross. He's dead. Where am I doing my life now? It's gone. But then he rose again, didn't he? And Peter says, man, you know, we saw last time how the Lord restored Peter. And he says, 
Praise God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercies has begotten us again unto a lively hope. My hope's been restored, amen? Amen. My hope's been restored by the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. It's a lively hope. You know, this thing that we're involved in, this is not some social club. This is a lively hope. It's a living hope. Hope. It is a hope that is on the inside alive. That no matter what's going on out here, there is such a a peace and a hope within the believer. Amen. Amen. You know, I I must say I was a little I was a little perplexed at the lack of lively hope that was in some of the church and believers. Over the last, over the results of the last year. You know, we do not put our hope in the things of this earth. Or in carnal kings. We put our hope in the eternal king. In Jesus Christ. And no matter what's going on in the White House, in the church house, is a lively hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our coming king, amen? He's the one who we sing. Praise God. And because we put our hope in that, we have an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and that fades not away. Reserved. Boy, when you go to a baseball game or something like that or a posh dinner joint, and you see that sign reserved, and you know it's for you. It makes you feel kind of special, doesn't it? it? Makes you feel like you're important, you know? Got your name card on there, VIP, reserved. You know, when you get to the marriage supper of the Lamb, that's going to be the largest table I've ever seen in my life. I don't know whether it's going to be a giant circle or just a really long rectangle. But I know one thing, when we get there... There's going to be a reserved placard for you and me. And I'll be able to look at you and say, hey, pass the butter. (laughs) It's going to be glorious. Praise God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these precious promises that we have in your word. We thank you, God, for our church and We thank you, God, for the hope, the lively hope that your scriptures, what they do for us, what they mean to us. And even tonight, Lord, as we were getting into your word, we could feel the faith of God arise in our hearts. Mm. We could feel the encouragement come into our lives, God the promises of your word so we thank you for that tonight god in jesus name praise god thank you pastor